We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. This is the Dane Moore NBA podcast brought to you by ZoneCoverage.com and the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. Today, what's today, Charlie? Thursday? Thursday, the 18th of April. There we go. Thursday, the 18th of April. Um, This podcast is going to be a presumptive matchup preview of the Milwaukee Bucks and Boston Celtics. As we record this, Milwaukee's up 2-0, Boston's up 2-0, and so... We're playing the odds, anticipating that this that is the second round matchup. I think I was interested in doing this because I believe that could be one of the best matchups of this playoff. So we are going to be digging almost completely deeply into that series. So for those who have come and listened to Charlie and I, this season for Timberwolves content, you aren't necessarily getting that. Uh, today, we can't fill up two months here, the rest of the playoffs with 60 minutes of like, what are they going to do with the mid-level exception? <laughs> so we're going to focus. We're going to focus on the playoffs. We will um, the last fifteen minutes of the podcast. I'll try and be hit that to a T. If you want to jump ahead, if you're not interested in the NBA playoffs, we'll talk about Jeff Teague opting in for his player option, and also the kind of recent news of what's been going on with the president of basketball operations. But this will be a Milwaukee Bucks, Boston Celtics centric podcast. Charlie Johnson is here with me as he. I don't know. Pretty much always is. What's up? You ready to talk Bucks Celtics? I'm ready. I'm excited to talk Bucks Celtics, but I do want to say I think there will be a point when we spend 60 minutes talking about the mid-level exception. Oh, 100%. <laughs> it, mu- Just not multiple today. Times. Multiple times. <laughs> I, yes. 
I love the mid-level exception. <laughs> I love the off-season. We, we will get there. It's just... I love the mid-level <laughs> exception. <laughs> the mini mid-level, the tax fair, all of them. Um, yeah, so just to jump into this series, I, I went back and watched chunks of the, the times that Milwaukee played Boston earlier this year, and I, I really find it to be a fascinating matchup, particularly as it pertains to Giannis Antetokounmpo because of the way Boston has in the past found ways to keep people away from the, the rim in the way that they gang defend and the litany of wings that they have and mm-hmm. also Al Horford yep. is as good as it gets at, as Stan Gundy said, building an effing wall in, yeah. the, in the lane. And that's what you need to do against Giannis Antetokounmpo is find a way to keep him out of the restricted area away from the paint. And so I think that is, that is where this, if you want to talk about how this series moves in one way or the other, it's about how Boston is able to defend the lane and particularly Giannis. So I think that's a good place to start. Fun stat. I want you to guess before I get there. Giannis best player in the NBA this year. Agreed. Actually my, I have, I had Harden for my MVP, but that's a whole separate conversation. Giannis was equally amazing. Awesome this year. Guess what his field goal percentage out of the restricted area was this season? Outside of the restricted area? Yeah, which is, to anybody who doesn't know that, it's like within three feet of the rim. So I bet it was 29%. Oh, you nailed it. Really? Yes. Right on. Did I put that in the outline? No, no, I swear. (laughs) Yes. And I didn't look that up. That was luck. 29% outside of the restricted area. Effective field goal, 37.2. Those are... Terrible yeah. numbers, of course. And that ef- that effective field goal percentage is coming from like just a few threes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's the reason he's been as amazing as he has this year is because once you get him in that restricted area, it's it's Shaq. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it, it, it just is. He is completely dominant. So for Boston, it's about keeping him out of there. What are your initial thoughts about how and where they will be able to to do that. Well, I think what I like you went back and I watched some of last year's playoff series as well. And I think what's the first thing that comes to my mind about a team that played in the first round last year and now playing in the second round this year is that both, both teams are very different than they were last year. Celtics mostly just because Kyrie is back yep. and the Bucks are a totally different team, just a, a much better team, especially, on, I mean, on both ends of the floor, but I think they'll be able to do more offensively this year. But I think that the way that this, what the Celtics try to do with Giannis, and I think that what they will try to do is they kind of allow him to create. They're always willing to switch, but they always stay home. They mm-hmm. always stay home on three-point shooters. And they've got so many guys from Jalen Brown to Jason Tatum to Al, to Al Horford who can guard him that it seems like they're always willing to switch, but they always stay home on those three-point shooters. So they they do kind of let Giannis create. They have good enough defenders that they're not going to just let him barrel his way to the rim anytime he wants, but they're also not going to you know, make it their life's mission to make sure that he doesn't attempt field goals. They're not going to leave other people open. So I, I thought it was interesting in going back and looking at this wasn't the playoffs last year. This was this season, and they played. Yep. They played the Bucks um, three times, uh, and only the Celtics won one of those three games. Yep. And it was interesting in the first two matchups, they didn't go with Horford as his primary yeah. defender, and they they switched freely and they tried. 
I mean, it, it wasn't. Who are the guys you just said, Brown and Tatum? Yeah, the, the first matchup, I actually looked up the matchup data. The first matchup in November, Semi Ogilvy was yeah, semi, his primary yep. defender, 24 semi. possessions, and then Marcus Morris at 17. And and it just, they, they freely switched, whether it was on a screen, Morris could be Hayward. Mm-hmm. It, yep. If you go back and you watch his shots, it's almost a different defender every yeah. single time. And then you go to the third matchup of the season, and I don't know what it would be interesting to ask Brad Stevens why, but yeah. they just went with Horford, just oh. top of the key, and they they put him at the nail, and they said, you know, come at me. Yep. And that was different than what Horford's Horford was like the primary help defender in in those other situations. And I actually thought that provided Horford could get over to help, which didn't happen every time, just naturally, mm-hmm. that seemed to bother Giannis more. That said, you need to weigh the balance of. Do we want to have the best guy to be the wall preventing yep. him from getting to the restricted area, or do you want to have, if or do you want to have Horford be there to be your best help defender? And it'll be interesting to see if they go with one plan or if they throw a mixture of looks at him. Yeah, and I would th- I would kind of think that Al Horford and Marcus Morris will be like the primary two defenders, just thinking about how they match up and who their biggest guys are. Because with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, you just think about Giannis, it's like he's just so big. He's so much bigger than those guys. Morris got wrecked. Yeah. He got wrecked. It's true. It's true. Mor- Morris isn't perfect either. But what, what seems to end up happening every time the Bucks and the Celtics play is that the Bucks more almost more use Giannis in, in, in like an off-ball setting where they're like running, like yeah. having him set screens off the ball and then creating mismatches that way. It's or, so hard to make a plan because yeah. of that. Because then they can't, the Celtics can't just say like, all right, well, you know, these three guys are switching and we trust any of them to, to, to guard him, right. whatever. Like we'll take our medicine or, or else they just post him up or they, they give him the ball in the elbows and they can't do anything about it. But I, I don't know. I would think that you'd put Al Horford on him. This is the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Put, put your best defender on the best offensive player. If he's healthy. If he's healthy. True. Which I, what we know kind of from the first two games, he's looked fine. He's, he's kind of, yeah, he's, he's hard to tell, you know? Whether I feel like the indicator of Horford not being healthy is how much they play him. You know, I, I don't think when I was watching him during the year, I was like, oh, Horford doesn't look right. You're just like, oh, you only played 22 minutes tonight. So yeah. I guess you're not healthy. Yeah. So in theory, maybe they were trying to save as much gas in his tank as they could because they knew they needed him uh, for the playoffs too. Along those lines relating to him, it'll be interesting to see how much they go with Baines there also, mm-hmm. kind of as that secondary defender. Because if you do have Horford and Baines, and I know Giannis is faster and stronger than almost everyone, like you have in Horford a strong and very smart defender, and then you have Baines, maybe the strongest. Yeah. To to just it, he's very difficult to move off the spot, and he he's also intelligent about you know. His feet aren't fast, but he get he gets to the place. He he knows what to do defensively. I'm, I just think back to that Sixers series last year, where you would just see Aaron Baines run back to the nail at the free throw line. He would stick out both of his arms, and he would just literally create a wall for Ben Simmons to to run into him there. So it, it's going to be, it's I think it's going to be won and lost. Yeah, by how much how much more the Bucks can dominate them there during the regular season. The Bucks outscored opponents by 11.1 per points per game in the paint, and that's just that's crazy. That's just a really a massive number. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they'll be from the Bucks side of this. 
you've got to try and play with as much pace as you can. Yep. And actually, I meant to run through these at, right at the beginning, just kind of the the bare bone metrics is the Bucks were fourth in offensive rating this season, first in defensive rating, first in net rating by a lot, and fifth in pace. Does that pace number surprise you a little bit? A little bit, because the only person I think of is, is Giannis taking four strides down the floor. So that was the second biggest leap in the NBA this year in pace. Wow. They increased 6.5. Yeah, I was... That kind of yeah. surprised me a little bit because I also pretty much just think of Giannis grabbing and going, yeah. which isn't. And the Bucks are—they're a ball movement team. Like they, they run a good offense, and that usually happens in the half court, not in transition. So, looking at it further, their pace comes off of defensive rebounds. That's where they're mm. comparatively fastest. That's just off, Giannis. That's just Giannis. Yeah, where it's off of a turnover. They're slow into the half court side off of a off of a made basket. They'll be willing to get down there and just line it up four shooters around Giannis, looking to attack. So, I think if I'm Milwaukee, I'm trying to tap into another one of those areas other than defensive rebounding because if the Boston defense is ready for the challenge, which I assume they will be, you need to find as many situations as possible that they're not going to be set and and ready to do so. So turnovers and just got to grab it out of the bucket and go like that's not that different than yeah. a defensive rebound so far this postseason boston is 16th out of 16 teams in pace and the bucks are second hmm. the bucks were fourth in the regular season so to to your point or was that wrong were they fifth or whatever but they're trying they're they're going to try to run but boston is just going to try to take care of the ball no turnovers and just muck this thing up like they have for both of the last two postseasons but this Bucks team is so much different from last year. I mean, to go from the Eric Bledsoe who sucked <laughs> against the Celtics and gave got owned by Terry Rozier to the Eric Bledsoe that they have right now, like he could be a difference maker in the series on both ends of the floor. They've just got, I mean, they have such better players now that when I think about the Celtics trying to muck up the series that way and slow it down and keep them out of transition, I just think, okay, I think that the Celtics can probably do that to a good extent, but I think that the, the Bucks, secondary, the sec, like the Bucks just have too much offensive firepower now that they're going to score 92 points or I mean, right. they're not going to score 78 well, like I think pacers. that's where it moves. It moves from the inside out. Yeah. If it is mucked up in the lane for, for Giannis, then they're able to go out to the perimeter where yeah. obviously they've had Brooke Lopez have a ton of success and, and you have Chris Middleton. I mean, all these weapons of guys who are hitting threes, difficult threes at a, you know, at a high level. Mm-hmm. And if you go through their bench guys, is I, I found something like Pat Connaughton, 91% of his shots are Leading at the, the rim or <laughs> three point or Leading the team in minutes per game so far this playoffs, Pat Connaughton. What? Do you want to hear a buck stat? Yes. How they've improved from last year to this year. During last year's playoffs, and granted, this is seven games, the Bucks had six guys play more than 10 minutes per game who during the regular season produced less than 0.1 win shares per 48 minutes. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of just like below average guys, but they played more than 10 minutes per game during the playoffs. That was Matthew Delavadova, Jason Terry, Tony Snell, Jeez. Thon Maker, Jabari Parker, and Malcolm Brogdon, who's like 0.099. This year, they only have one, one player who produced less than one or 0.1 win shares per 48 minutes, playing more than 10 minutes per game in the playoffs, and that's Sterling Brown, and he was at 0.098. So the the players that they're putting out there, like the Pat Connaughton's, the Sterling Browns, are just so much better than the Tony Snells and Jabari Parkers and Jason Terry's that they were throwing out there last year. That 
that end of your rotation to be so much more solid. It just makes it hard for a team like the Celtics who want to get you out of your comfort zone to do that because you have guys who are comfortable. Well, and I think this, the thing that's been floating all season with the Bucks is their best players are playing like 31 minutes a game. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, in the playoffs, we can ramp them up to 40, 38, 40, yeah. something like that. And so wow, seven extra minutes of Giannis, seven extra minutes of Chris Middleton. But the good thing is, Provided those players are solid, they don't have to do that. Those bench players that you're naming, they don't have to do that. You, And then you could have a more fully charged Giannis yes. yeah. for, for the whole time. What, do you have that up there? What is what is Giannis? I guess the Detroit games have been blowout. So. The minutes per game? Yeah. He's still under 30. It's like, they. I don't have it in front of me, but they have about four or five guys in between 28 and 30. So I, I think Sterling Brown's an, an interesting place to go with the Brogdon injury, but I do, I, I do think that... We need to talk about Milwaukee's ability to hit threes there mm-hmm. because uh, the classic line make or miss league, it's going to come down to that at some point. And if they start doing something against Boston that resembles what OKC has done uh, against Portland, then they're, then they're just making, they have consecutive games where they're making, make 25, 30% of their threes. Mm-hmm. Like that is going to be such a needle mover because at least during the regular season, 42% of their field goal attempts were three-point shots. The Bucks, Yeah, which is crazy yeah. considering Giannis doesn't really shoot them and he's taking such high volume at the rim. Guess which this, the, the Houston obviously shoots the most, but I'm, I want you to guess something again because I think All this right. one's even harder. So the Bucks are third in three-point volume this year. Okay. Houston's number one. Guess who number two is? I don't think I would have got this in 10 Like three-point attempts per game? Um, percentage of field goal attempts. Oh. So it's about the same thing. Yeah, so basically the same thing. How about the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets? Non-playoff team. Oh, non-playoff team? Yeah, I wouldn't have got this, so. Um, the Kings? Dallas Mavericks. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah, well, that is weird. I wouldn't have guessed it either, but now that you say it, I'm kind of like, all right. Yeah, I just saw like a stat. I was like, that they were like, oh, the Bucks have shot the third most. And I was like, well, obviously number one is Houston. Yeah. Who's number two? So I clicked on it and I was like, oh, <laughs> Dallas. But, um... The three-point shooting of those bench players is huge. And I think actually George Hill is an interesting one. He did not shoot the three ball well mm-hmm. since he came to Milwaukee, 31%. They they have got a lot out of Sterling Brown when he's played from three, 51% on corner threes, which is obviously huge. Yep. Um, Pat Connaughton, as you, you mentioned, has had a lot of success from there too. I think Brooke Lopez ended the year somewhere at like 37 38% on high volume. But they do – I mean, that's going to need to be repeated. Yeah. And – they haven't been pushed to need to do that, in the, and they won't in the Detroit series. I do think that that will be a needle mover in in this in the series is what the shooters around Giannis yeah. are able to do because you're not going to be able to just have thirty Giannis shots at the rim. Boston yeah. just won't allow it. No, and and they're also great at, at at staying home and defending three point shooters and contesting their shots. So I. I agree with you. I think that the two, the Celtics' best kind of two chances at at winning this series, and you might already be able to tell that I think the Bucks are going to win. But I think that what gives the Celtics the best two chances is, cold, uh, you know, Buck shooters going cold or just being defended well, and or Kyrie Irving going off. I think those two things need to happen, and I think that the Bucks or the Celtics, excuse me, are going to make it their priority to stay home on those shooters. And I don't think they're going to let Giannis take 35 attempts, but I think they'd let him take 27 before they really leave wide open shooters. Hmm. See, I don't know. I mean, I think you have to bring a second defender. Yeah. 
So, so are you bringing the second defender and then you're having the other three guys stay home? Yeah. I, I think, I think that's what it would have to be. Probably. <clears throat> I just think that can be easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Cause you don't know if, is he going right? Is he going left? Is that the strong side? Is that the weak side? That will affect the pull and push of all of it. That said, Boston's very good at managing that. Yeah. They're very good at defending with a crowd for Giannis. Those aren't going to be just easy kickouts nope. where Giannis is going to be like, all right, now there's three people on me. Where are you, Sterling Brown? Oh, you're wide open in the corner. Like, yeah. I think it will be easier said than done to find those shooters. But I think maybe a little bit more than you are. I think they might be more open. You do? Because I, I just, if you're picking, <laughs> if you're Boston, you're picking, you're like, yeah. what do I want to stop? Pick your poison. Like, yeah. Giannis is poisonous. If but he I, gets in there. But the Celtics do it. It's their priority. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're right. It'll be, that'll be an interesting thing to see is how much are the Celtics willing to help off of onto Giannis to, to make him drive into traffic? And how much would they rather say, you know what, take tough one on one shots over Al Horford and, and, and don't leave the three point shot open. Cause I, I think I just, I, I disagree with you a little bit and I think that it's going to be more of their priority to not let wide open shooters take wide open shots. How deep into the lane does Al Horford start on Giannis? I'm just thinking I was watching the golden state series yeah. and, and you have like against three golden state players, Montrezl Harrell, whoever it is, will literally just sit under the hoop. If yeah. Devon Looney is, up top, you know, holding the ball or even Draymond Green, Andrew Bogut too. Is it going to be that exaggerated or does Horford, like, I don't know. Is that an advantage to give Giannis all that space there? To give him that, I I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think Giannis is smart enough and good enough that you're not going to bait him into shooting five mid-rangers in the game. He just knows. But what about five threes? Does he just start shooting those? I would be surprised. But if you're the Celtics, that's why you yep. do it. But... The counterpoint is Giannis is going to take two steps behind the three-point line and run at Al Horford as fast as he can. Dunk over. And then it's like Al, for, Al Horford's a great defender, but what when this deer literally is yeah. running <laughs> 40 miles an hour at you, what are you going to do? It's, it's, going to be, it's going to be fascinating how they defend Giannis. And my guess would be that because we saw it in the regular season, multiple different ways of doing it, I, I wonder if they just did that simply to have tape and experience yeah. of just trying different things against them. Or if they if they wanted to save it a little bit for the playoffs. I mean, I, I wrote down these numbers. So Semi Ojale during that first Bucks Celtics game this year when he guarded Giannis, mm-hmm. the Bucks scored 1.2 points per possession. Marcus Morris during that game, 1.4. The next game about a month later. And Morris, it can't be Morris. No. Well, he's, too, he's too emotional. He just, he thinks he can stop Giannis. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, but you're right. And that's a, a good and bad thing. I mean, he's also like got the size more than some of the other guys. So it's interesting. It's like, I mean, what is Jalen Brown going to do to stop? Giannis? I just think what you do is you just play it. You just try and play the tactical game of let's get to the spots where there's going to be a secondary defender. Mm-hmm. And Marcus Morris is going to do the slap the ground and like, mm-hmm. oh, I can check Giannis and you can't, no, you can't. I, I Nobody can. No. So I, I just, I don't know. When I was going back and watching, I was like, oh, here's Giannis on Marcus Morris. Here comes a bucket. And it was, I mean, yeah, it, I don't know. Keep going. Sorry. No, no, you're right. Um, Jalen Brown, that next game about a month later, when he defended Giannis, 16 possessions, 
the Bucks scored 1.625 points oh. per possession. And this is at 16 possessions. It's small, yeah. You hit a couple threes, it changes well, things a lot. It's a small sample, but it's interesting. And Al Horford was kind of the most solid 1.02 points per mm-hmm. possession. That's like a, a cat post up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a good which is a good play, but he was kind of the most solid. And that was 31 possessions. So he really was his primary defender that game. And you wonder if I mean, if they were going to save it for the playoffs, you'd think they'd actually save it for the playoffs. But that's that's easy to predict. Like, if they never had Horford on Giannis during the regular season, you go like, well, maybe they're just going to put Horford on him. Like, because <laughs> that makes sense. Why didn't they ever do that during the regular season? Right. How concerned are you about the Brogdon injury? I'd like to have him back, especially because I think he's one of their most clutch players. Yeah. He he. I would not want anyone else on that team shooting a three for me with two minutes left, you know, down by two. I'd want Malcolm Brogdon to shoot it. It sounds like he he might play, though. Yeah, so I was trying to... It, it seems to be a bit up in the yeah. air at, at this point. I just... So the their normal best lineup of Bledsoe, Brogdon, Middleton, Giannis, Lopez, when those five played together, which the group that they would play the most in this series, if Brogdon was healthy, that group had a 110 offense... Or 110.7 offensive rating, which is good. Yeah. Um, when, when they, when they played together, you sub, you sub Brown and these are regular season numbers. You sub Brown in for Brogdon. It drops to 93.6, which is the third worst among 126 lineups in the NBA who played over hundred minutes together. Wow. That's really bad. Like that's so much worse Would not than the worst offense that. in the NBA. Cause I don't think Brown's like that terrible, but there, there's an element of what Brogdon brings to that yeah. team in terms of stabilization and understanding how he gets the other four guys going and when it's time for him to get going. Yeah. And I don't think Sterling Brown is anywhere near that intellectual when when you talk about basketball IQ. I wonder if, I wonder if with Marcus Smart's injury, I wonder if Terry Rozier, Terry Rozier will play some alongside Kyrie and then they can just play George Hill in that two Mm -hmm. spot instead. Which is helpful for defensive purposes. Yeah, and that's kind of just another upgrade for them. Even though George Hill hasn't been great since he got to Milwaukee, it's like last year you were playing Matthew Delvadova and Jason Terry. It's like George Hill is a solid player. So I I think And they didn't do a lot of that lineup during the the regular season, but you already saw it in the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, in the Detroit series, I think they're testing the water on that. Yeah, where they've started to play Hill like at functionally at the two, which he's big enough. Yeah, to totally. Do. They'll be even if it's not Rozier, like he could he could defend some of those other yeah. wings. Okay, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think that's a good point because yeah. it, it seems to me I'm <laughs> this is I'm concerned about Brogdon if Brown is a liability, mm-hmm. and I think there's a chance he's a liability. But as you met, I mean, it's good to have other options that you can put yeah. in there situationally, depending on which Celtics are, are out there handling it. I think bigger picture, if we want to move beyond this series, as I think we're both going to pick the Bucks. I do think that they do need Brockton to yeah. be able to. They don't have much glue on that team. They have a lot of firepower and Brogdon is probably their glueiest piece. And I, I do like, I want him out there to finish games if I'm the Bucks. Right. So I, I'm with you, but I don't think it's going to be the end. I'll be all for this series. Do you have anything else on the Bucks specifically on offense? We should move to the Celtics. No, let's move to the Celtics. All right. The bare bone, I don't know why I'm calling them that. The offensive rating is 10, 10th <laughs> in the league. Defensive rating is sixth. The Cel- and this is the Celtics. Their net rating is sixth, and they played with the guess the pace. The Celtics, yeah. oh, like 24th. 
16th. Oh, that's faster yeah, than I kinda, thought. I would have thought it was a little bit. I think it ticked up. Yeah. Like after the All-Star break. Because they are last this postseason so far. Interesting. I mean, two games, so. Um, they are the fastest team. They take, they're the quickest to the shot in the NBA after turnovers. Hmm. And interesting. Yeah. For a team that, when I think of watching the Boston Celtics, I think of a slow-paced team. Yeah. And. Do they shoot a ton of transition threes? Is that why? Um, I wonder. I just have the, I don't have the, the volume of them here, but, but yeah, the, the fastest, the fastest to shoot and their efficiency is like, oh, 1.34 yeah. off of a turnover. So really they're good. They are good in transition after creating a turnover. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they're going to slow it down. Yep. And they're going to try and beat in the half court, rely on their offense initially. And then the fallback is Kyrie, of course, mm-hmm. in any sort of traditional setting. I think what's going to be huge, and we'll get to Kyrie specifically. I think he's the, just as Giannis is the bellwether for Milwaukee, of course, Kyrie is for them. I'm really interested in how they shoot the ball around him, which is kind of what we were saying. Yeah. Maybe this is just the NBA now. You have your best player and well, you these have are shooters two, around him. These are two unique teams as it relates to three-point shooting and three-point defense because both of them had these great defenses and both of them allowed opponents to shoot a good number of threes. Not a good percentage, but a good number of them. So they're interesting teams. And I think given that, it's going to be really interesting how much the three-point game makes a difference because as it's pretty well documented, the Bucks allowed more threes to be attempted than any other team in the Mm -hmm. league, intentionally so. I think the Celtics were like third, too. Really? Okay, yeah. I didn't have that one. Um, um, it, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that sounds right. It, it's What I think is going to be interesting is what are the threes mm-hmm. that Milwaukee is all right with giving? Yep. Because traditionally, just in a really simple standpoint, you don't want to give up corner threes. Yep. You want to give up above-the-break threes relatively contested. Mm-hmm. The Celtics are the only team in the league who shot worse from the corners than they did from above the break. 34.8 from the corners. Hmm. Yeah, so they're a bad corner shooting Weird, team. that's... So do you grab onto that stat and you go, okay, well, we'll flip to the court. Like, no, right? Not, you don't do not, that. It's I would <laughs> So I found that stat, and again, which is they're worse at corner threes than above the break, which just doesn't really make sense. That's an 82-game sample yeah. size. But what happens is they don't, they don't set up in the corners often. And yeah. I, I was, so I found that set and then I went back and I was watching the last Boston, Indiana game and Indiana has been doubling Al Horford on, on the block. And so Horford being Al Horford, you know, it's like, okay, double team, look for my kick. And because of that, the, the opposite corners guy, Marcus Morris, who's, who's standing over there, comes into the lane to help Marcus Morris, instead of just standing in the corner where the three pointer is a lot shorter he ends up moving above the break, and then Horford's kicking it to him there too. And Terry Rozier is the same way. I watched it, I think it was like four or five times in that game. They, they intentionally moved away from an open corner three to an, still open, yeah, above, above the break three. And I think it has to be a product of those guys being more comfortable. Yeah, I was going to say the they must know it. The only other theory I was going to propose was that Kyrie Irving takes so many pull-up threes that he's just having a major and impact it, on that stat. And it, that could be part of it, but... It could be that, but but get this then. So I looked at Marcus Morris, I'm like, what? It was weird. He's moving away from there. Yeah. 
he shot 22% on corner threes. So I think he so, just doesn't yeah. like corner threes. He knows. The second worst corner three-point shooter of 148 players who shot 50. Huh. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. I, it's just... It's a shorter three, but I think there's also just an, an element of, of comfort to that. Yeah, especially in the right corner. I know like almost any given year, the average NBA team will shoot like three times as many corner threes from the left corner as they do from the right corner. And I think that the biggest reason for that is that they're right-handed. Yep. So they're right-eye dominant, and you're just yep. trying to give yourself a little bit better angle at the basket. But these guys just know this stuff. Right. They just know I'm a 22% corner three-point shooter. I shouldn't <laughs> do that very often. Or may, I, I and maybe guess. they shouldn't because Marcus Smart should shoot, or Marcus Morris, Morris should yeah. shoot open corner threes. You would think it's... So I'm thinking if, if we're able to grab this information, yeah. Obviously Milwaukee Budenholzer is too. Mm-hmm. So how do you react to that? Do you do you try and you know siphon the offense towards Marcus Morris corner threes? Like it, yeah. that'll be an, an that'll be interesting thing to 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 follow in the in this series too. Because literally no other team in the league is like this, is, yeah. is the way that Boston I is. think that the the Bucks make it they're really smart about knowing who to let shoot threes. I read that the Bucks opposing the, the team the teams that the Bucks played against, their point guards shot the fewest threes per game. Sorry, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I got uh, you. People who played against the Bucks, the Bucks let the big men shoot and they don't let the point guards shoot. Mm-hmm. So, they will let Al Horford take 11 threes a game if they want to, but they'll do everything they can to stop Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. So, extrapolated across an entire season, teams who played against the Bucks, their point guards shot the fewest threes per game. Their big men shot the most threes per right. game. So I think that the Bucks' strategy as it relates to three-point defense is more about that. Like, And Marcus Morris probably factors into that. Like, yeah, when Marcus Morris is open in the corner, let him shoot it. And yeah, if Al Horford's going to be willing to take nine threes, we're going to let him take all of them. That's what I was going to say. I think as a big man, there becomes a discomfort in being like, wow, this is my eighth three I've yeah. taken. And I wish there wasn't. Yeah, I, but I think that's just a product of yeah. you're like you're probably this really tall dude your whole life, and you just started shooting threes a lot like yeah. a couple of years ago. And if you're two for eight, you're like ah, oh. exactly yeah. one for oh for eight. Like, yeah. do you take it again? And the the Bucks run a dropping pick and roll scheme where Brooke Lopez isn't going to get out and switch and dance on the perimeter. No. He just drops back into the lane, so that leaves the big man wide open to pop shoot threes. And what we're seeing with Miles Turner all the time is all right, like. He's, okay, you came up, you set the screen for Tyreek Evans or Darren Collison. Brooke Lopez goes, okay, I'm dropping back. And they're, and the the guard defending mm-hmm. Darren Collison is ro- rolling with them too. They're essentially defending the ball handler with yeah. two guys. Yeah. That, that's how that manifests. Yeah, Timberwolves fans have seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think... I think that's that, tip, I mean, that's what yeah, tips did. Exactly. Yeah. I think that the drop scheme is important to talk about because, like I said a little bit earlier, if Kyrie Irving going crazy is kind of what gives the Celtics the best chance to win, defending him with a drop, drop pick and roll scheme, you might be inviting him to go crazy. He mm-hmm. He's making a lot of mid-rangers. His floater game is great. He'll shoot pull-up threes. So you might just be asking Kyrie Irving to score 38 points per game. So I think that'll be interesting. Crazy Kyrie stat that I don't even know where it is in my notes. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, oh, no, here it is. Here it is. So they played played Milwaukee three times. Kyrie Irving is one of the best two-point mm-hmm. guards in the league. He shot for the season 53% from two-point range. Also 41 from three. One of the best just <laughs> yeah. scorers in the league. But in the three games, he shot 34.9% from twos. 
against hmm. the Bucks. And so I'm with you that he is a great guy to have, you know, pull up from mid-range yeah. folder. Like he's very good at that. But when you have big, strong, fast Eric Bledsoe on your hip yep. pushing you off the spot that you want to get to, and then you have the hands long of Brooke Lopez and Giannis Antetokounmpo coming for the contest, mm-hmm. that becomes a much more difficult shot. Yep. And is is Kyrie a good enough of a shot maker to overcome that? Yes. But that's different. Yeah. That, that's different than what you're getting against Indiana yeah. when it's Darren Collison and I know Miles Turner's long or whatever, but like the Bucks between Atetacumpo, Lopez, and Bledsoe have these three elite defensive weapons mm-hmm. to be able to disturb Kyrie or anyone who's trying to come into the lane where they want him to come in to yep. take those two-point shots. So then if you get him off and he starts trying to kick out of there, well, now you've kicked it to Al Horford yep. for the eighth time yep. to shoot a three. Is he going to make those? Al's still most comfortable in the mid-range himself. Yeah. Like that's – the Celtics don't necessarily have that stretch knockdown big who, yeah. who has like well, – Marcus Morris kind of <laughs> who will just shoot him a, a lot. But mm-hmm. th- that is a that is an interesting thing. I think Stevens has to tell him you got to shoot these. Yeah. Because if Al Horford instead starts four for five from there – then you start thinking, if you're Milwaukee, what are we doing? Yep. How, how do we compensate for this? Yep. This isn't the average team that we've been defending the whole year. So that will be a huge swing point, and it could be something that if Boston starts punishing them in game one, game two, where you go, okay, we can't play Brooke Lopez 30 minutes tonight. We have to cut that down, because, and we need to go play Ursan Ilyasova or somebody else who doesn't have to drop as deep yeah. as, as Lopez does. So there will be... This series will have no shortage of defensive chess Schematic, pieces yeah. move. It's and those be are great. the best. Those are the totally the best series. Well, I think it's, that's those Kyrie numbers are really interesting. Three I, games. I, I want to reiterate I, yeah, that. Three no, games. Exactly. I, was like, I okay. wonder how much of that is, like you said, really long arms on the contest and Eric Bledsoe is in. I think it's Bledsoe a lot. Like Bledsoe's going to be a difference maker yes. in this series. But I wonder also how much of it is three games, and if you're if you're going to give Kyrie that space for seven games, maybe it's a mistake. But I also think Mike Budenholzer would sit and listen to me say like, "Wow, Kyrie Irving might like pick apart this this drop pick and roll defense because he's such a great mid range shooter and he'll just take floaters and pull up threes." And I think he'd say, "Great, like let him take mid rangers and floaters." Oh wait, Celtics. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean that's the whole Kobe. That was the whole Kobe theory. Yeah, and that was Tibbs. Totally. Who's the drop yep. scheme ice guy let who, him, who let him started it all? said, let Kobe shoot yeah. a million of these from 16, 18 feet. Yeah. And I mean, is the Mamba mentality, like, is there anybody else who's who's more like yeah. that? Like Kobe, who will do those and oblige? No. Says, hey, you're giving me you're giving me 19 footers? Thank you. All day. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's a disconnect there. Yeah. So the, that scheme will be... It's probably a thing where if I had to guess, you know, if this is a six-game series... Kyrie goes off in two of them, but he's a little bit colder in four of them. Like it's a numbers game. He's gonna he's gonna have a hot game, and that that's that's what's going to determine it. Yeah, if Boston's going to win this series. Is how high can Kyrie Irving yeah. elevate, or can they somehow turn this Bucks offense into into a pumpkin? I mean, like they yeah, I guess it's just the Pacers right now don't have anyone to take advantage of what we're, what we're saying Kyrie Irving could do against that drop pick and roll scheme. The Pacers right now don't have anyone who can create off the dribble, really. Mm-hmm. 
So there's no like touch point right now to say like, well, the Pacers, like what if Darren Collison like had been going off, then there might be more concern. Should be Tyreek Evans. Should be Tyreek Evans, but they just, or Aaron Holiday or some of them, they just don't have anyone really to do that. So it's going to be a bit of a new test. Not that the Bucks haven't been playing this same scheme all season, but it's a playoffs. It's going to be a bit of a new test when in the playoffs, an open 18 footer is a better shot than it was in the regular season. The efficiency of, yeah. All shots go down. I mean, yeah, you just look at the score yeah, of the game. Exactly, it's yeah. better, better defense. I, I think when when we talk about how high can Kyrie elevate, and at what level can he play at, and I feel pretty confident that Kyrie's going to play well in this series. Me too. But there becomes a ceiling for him, depending on how well those other players around him play. The, the I mean, I think we can rely on Horford, but you have to me you have really big question marks in Gordon Hayward and Jason Tatum. Yeah, what are you? Yeah, I mean, the volatility of those players. If if they bring you four good games, three bad games, and very much so, it's going to be so disorienting mm-hmm. for Boston as a team that I think they will very much impact what it is that Kyrie can do because then he's able to kick out to Jason Tatum, who obliges and actually shoots a three, or Gordon Hayward attack you know attacks off of that. Neither of them have done that consistently all season. I think mm-hmm. Hayward started to play better. Mm-hmm. Um, after the all-star break, he started getting to the free throw line a lot more. He just started shooting a lot better. Like he's more so more moving in that on the way. defensive end too. Yeah. 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 He, I mean, he's still, and just going back and he's still not laterally there, that, yep. but that more manifests on the, the defensive end, but he, he needs to be, he needs to be an offensive weapon. And so does Jason Tatum. And, what I would have said through the first seven quarters of this series against the Pacers is Jason Tatum's just kind of Jason Tatum. Like he's just, he's just there. He's not, he's not bringing, he's yeah. not bringing much. He played, he was a, played a big role in the end of game two, but he has to, he has to be what he was against the Cavs mm-hmm. to, to give them a yeah. shot, I think against the Bucks. And it's just kind of an interesting the Jason Tatum experience so far has been so fascinating because he got that leash last year to do what he did during the playoffs because of injuries. He, he never really should have had it, but he did and he took advantage of it. Now it's been taken away and it's kind of been this drama all season with the Celtics like, oh, you know, like we got to have some more camaraderie. Like it's different because everybody's like competing for with, you know, with their position partners and that seems to be like to have lingered because now it's the playoffs and now Jason Tatum, he doesn't look that good. Mm-hmm. And neither does Gordon Hayward. It really only... You know, well, Jalen Brown has though. Yeah, I, I've, solid. I've, I've, I, it's been, I think he, he seems to recognize it's the playoffs. Yeah. And that I just need to play hard the whole time. Yeah. Whereas it just seems like there's so much going on in both Gordon Hayward and Jason Tatum's head. I think I agree with that. There's just so much Jason Jalen Brown just seems like so much more of a, a he's so much more comfortable in his own skin. Yep. Like if he's not going to be the superstar, he's still going to play a solid game whereas Jason Tatum just seems to be less so like that. And that's probably a product of you know Tatum being what is he 20 21 yep. now and Gordon Hayward obviously has yeah. a whole set of mental obstacles to yeah. overcome given and, his injury, but that has to happen. Yeah. And Jalen Brown also seems a little bit rare in his yeah. maturity at such a young age. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I think Jason Tatum's going to have to shoot 60% from three during 50% from three during this series on meaningful attempts. And Kyrie's going to have to go off. And that's 
the only way the Celtics can really. Which is probably indicative of what your prediction for yeah. this for this series is going to be. We decided that rather than picking which team's going to win in how many games, which whatever, that's a, a fine exercise. Yeah. It's about who, to me, it's about who wins the series mm-hmm. and what are the odds that you win the series. Mm-hmm. So we just each put a percent chance that Milwaukee wins the series and I guess the corresponding percent that Boston does. What is your number? Okay. I I didn't write it down, but I was trying to conceptualize this, like comparing it to free throws. <laughs> like if it was 80%, you know, is this like a cat free throw where I'm mm-hmm. super confident he's going to make it? If it's like 60%, is this like a Wiggins free throw where, <laughs> you know, better better chance than not, but, you know, this isn't great. I, I ended up at 70% in between a cat free throw and a Wiggins free throw because I think that if you if you played this series three times, the Bucks would win it twice and the Celtics would win it once. So I've taken the Bucks 70%. I'm noticeably higher than that okay. on the Bucks winning it. I think um, I have 85. Okay. And so like a cat free throw. Sure. <laughs> it's, and I know a lot of people don't necessarily follow like betting lines and money lines, but if you, if you look around the league and if, if you're someone who looks at that, one of the closest series of, of this first round was Denver, San Antonio going into it. And it was minus 275, I believe, which breaks down to a 71% chance of Denver mm. winning it. Mm-hmm. That's the, those are the Vegas odds, yeah. which in theory are fair. As good as you can get, yeah. As good as you can get. And so I started to think about it from that because I was initially like 70, 75%. And I go, I think that the Milwaukee Bucks have a noticeably better chance of beating the Boston Celtics than the Denver Nuggets did of beating San Antonio. So maybe you disagree yeah. with that initial line. I actually thought that was... Well, that's an interesting way of I, looking at it. I, I, I thought of that as relatively fair. I probably would have said like 75% yeah. Denver. But it's just important to remember in the playoffs how often... Well, what the better team wins, mm-hmm. you know, every time. Yep. Well, I don't take that for what it's worth. But the odds are. And yep. if you look, if you're somebody who comes through Vegas betting lines, it's much higher than you would think of the of the higher seed winning it every time. So... I don't think 15% or for yours is 30% is small that Boston could like I that, don't either. I, I'm that that is that is suggesting that there is a real possibility that they win this whereas something like Clippers Warriors that's 1% that the Clippers win it, you know, yep. going into that series or whatever like the, I think even 15 mine 15% is giving Boston credit for the possibility that they could. Yep. If Kyrie does what you were saying, if they are able to execute defensively and hit their shots there's a 15% chance of that happening. Yeah. I mean, and I think games. yours was a much more, more coherent way of, of coming to a number than my free, free throw analogy. I like that. No, that actually makes sense. But also I'm going to stay with it because I think that the Celtics have proven that they can execute I th- on the defensive end. I think Kyrie Irving has proven that he can go off. So, and I'm still, I didn't think it was an accomplishment last year when the Bucks took the Celtics to seven. I thought the Bucks should have won that series. I yep. thought it was more of an indictment on them than anything else. And I still don't think that, I think playing the Pacers right now without Victor Oladipo is a bit of a layup for them. So I still want to see it a little bit. And I still want to see Budenholzer in the playoffs a little bit. And so I still think that there is a mm-hmm. a real world where the Celtics win this yep. series. I, so whether you say that's 15% or 30 you're probably right to look at it the Vegas I mean, way. But. I, I said at the beginning, I was I think this is going to be one of the better yeah. series that we're yeah. going to have of the whole playoffs. Yeah. It's just, 
the Celtics. Good, the, good the, series yeah. aren't often 50-50. There aren't no. very many 50-50 series. And the Bucks are just better. So what? Okay, this is somewhat related, but assuming it's Golden State-Houston, well, off the top of your head, what would you put the odds on that? Like 50, or this year? This year, yeah. Like if they are playing in the second round and it's Golden State-Houston. About the same. 70, two-thirds, one-thirds, oh, yeah, so you're 30. 70 there. Yeah. Okay. It's I was probably, just saying, I would, be, I would drop down from my 85. Okay. More, and I, 65 is what came So you head. think that there's more of a disparity between the Bucks and the Celtics than there is between yes. the Warriors and the Rockets? Yes. Okay. I think it's more likely. I think that's a similar gap. But Yeah. But that's so interesting. That's the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And Well, the Bucks were the best team in the NBA this year. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, you could, Fourth you could offense, have told me I think there's a defense, 90% yeah. chance, and I would say it's hard to argue against you. Right, right. There's going to be no way of us measuring this. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not going to play out a thousand times. Or but, but, but Bucks and Six, right? Bucks and Six. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So we have that. Um, let's briefly, this is the end of the NBA segment of this podcast. We're going to hit on some Timberwolves notes because... We cover the Timberwolves, even though that they are out of out of the playoffs. But some news has come out over the you know the past few weeks that we haven't talked about on recent podcasts. And the most recent bit of news is that um, the Wolves appear to be having a comprehensive search mm-hmm. for a president of basketball operations. Um, the three names that have come to light are Michael Winger, Garrison Rosas, and Calvin Booth. Uh, Winger it works in the Clippers front office. Booth in the Nuggets front office and Rosa's in the Rockets front office, all three of which um, makes sense. Makes sense. They come from kind of similarly. They come from franchises that you would like to see the Wolves take steps yeah. in the direction that those teams have made with the Clippers. I think what you obviously point to is getting off of good trades, good trades that got off of money. Mm-hmm. And obviously you can make that, you can draw that comparison with Wiggins, Jang, Teague that the, that the wolves have Denver. I think that line's pretty simple to draw. You know, they've found a way to incorporate and embolden their star center through putting pieces around him that strengthen his candidacy of being a, a superstar. Yeah. And then obviously the Rockets have kind of been beyond golden state, the, gold standard over the past two or three years of competent management and being a competitive team. <laughs> totally. won 65 games last yeah. year. And I think we're very close to winning the finals last year, even though they didn't even make the finals. Oh, so yeah, that was, they were. <laughs> I, I just, it's in, it's encouraging from that uh, perspective. I'd be excited about um, any of those. I think mm-hmm. it would be a massive signal to where the franchise is going to empower one of those type of people that isn't a former player, isn't someone from the country club, isn't what, I mean, someone who you can feel confident in putting together a plan and executing it. Yeah. And um, I, I, I wanted to say this on a previous podcast, but we kind of were running out of time and talking about the president of basketball operations. And I've heard a lot of things about Michael Winger, dating back months. I remember just right after Tibbs was fired, you know, just putting around some feelers of not, not necessarily who do you think the wolves are going to hire, but you know, who are the next guys? And the, every person I, I texted Michael Winger is the name that came up as 
this guy is going to take over yeah. a franchise and he is beyond competent to be able to do so. And then I was like, okay, Michael Winger, I'm going to do a little bit of research as to, as to who this guy is. And, and then as time went on further and further, and it seemed like Scott Layden's fate was somewhat sealed, start putting that out again. And the thing was, I've heard that Winger could be someone in, you know, in the running for, for the Wolves position. And so it's like, okay, but then the news that made, Woj tweeted that, yeah. you know, they were going to stick with Layden and, and that was like, well, that's a little bit conflicting. It was good to see that, in fact, they are interviewing Michael Winger. Mm -hmm. And everything that I can know about him from people I trust is that he is a beyond competent person to to put in place there. So I think I think it's very difficult to assess um, executives in the league. And I try and rely on people who know a lot more about that, who are familiar with how that actually works yep. to do so. And Winger's name has been one that is... Yeah. yeah, and kind of the cream of the crop. It's so hard to evaluate these things because you just look and you go, okay, this guy worked for this organization that's had success. He's their second in command. Like, yeah, that's a likely, a likely person. So, what were the were there three options? Was it do this thorough search that they're doing, which is commendable? The other one was retain Scott Layden or basically promote him to president of basketball operations, and the other one was stay inside the country club and pick a Milt Newton or a Chauncey Billups or someone mm -hmm. like that. Is it that surprising that they're doing this search? I just I was less surprised. Maybe it maybe I'm crazy, but they did I know Corn Ferry wasn't like the greatest thing, but it seemed but like Tibbs when was he went, the guy then. I mean, like Tibbs was a, Yeah, but it was outside candidate. of the country club. It's like so is Michael Winger. He's like mm -hmm. the guy, kind of. Yeah. All three of them. So they're just kind of going to the next the guy. Right. It's I mean, to, on some level. I guess I was less surprised about this. I think that they're doing I think this. Tibbs was more the guy in the public eye. People knew who he was. Mm -hmm. He was a coach of the year, had prolonged success in Chicago. And so it was a sexier totally. name. Like, I don't think, I think maybe to you and I, yeah, yeah. Winger is like, we, we see him as very competent. So we see him as the guy, but I, I'm not sure that. That's fair. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Um, I guess I was just less surprised. It seemed, it was like. I, what you're saying is like, should this be a shock that they're doing something like competent? Well, that, I, I get that. That yeah. is a shock. I just didn't think they were going to hire Milton Newton or Chauncey Billups without interviewing the like more <laughs> yeah. qualified people. That would have been terrible. It, having been somebody who for my whole life has watched every single Timberwolves game, that would still shock me. Mm -hmm. That would still shock me. So I guess I'm just less surprised right now. I still don't think this means that they're going to hire a Michael Winger and not a Chauncey Billups, but it's a good, I, it's a good sign. The thing is, and what maybe I don't think people realize as much, is that compared to the David Kahn days or even before that, when it was like McHale, whatever, there weren't a lot of people on the business side who were in on these decisions. Yep. It's a bigger room now mm -hmm. who is from the C Obviously, everyone's heard the CEO, Ethan Casson's name, as he was like the guy who fired Tibbs. There's him and he has his cronies yeah. who are in there cronies. and in, <laughs> in Glenn's ear about making a good move. And that wasn't the case yeah. to the extent it, as I understand it, that it is now, you know, it's, it's different. And so competence should be expected, even though that's not historically what's been hap happened yeah. with the Minnesota Timberwolves franchise. Yeah. Whoever it is that they hire, 
has a hell of a task in front of them, as we've talked about at length on this podcast. And anybody who's bothered to take a gander at the cap sheet knows that as well. <laughs> um, the, I, mo- the most kind of, I don't know, reinforcing thing there is that Jeff Teague opted yeah. in his contract. And now you're like, okay, this okay, is, it's this is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's um, not going to be space. You said when you were talking about having this competent process and interviewing these three candidates and it would be a great sign to give them the keys. And I don't, I know we don't want to, there's no benefit to getting into a Ryan Saunders conversation right now, but do you have any since over the last few weeks, do you have any more of an inkling or any more of a thought on what that's going to mean? Does a Michael Winger want to come take the Wolves job? And I know Ryan Saunders is respected around the league and from any reporting I've seen, that doesn't seem to be a huge hindrance to potential candidates for the president of basketball operations role. But I wonder how that will play out. I just, it's still such a big part of it. Does Michael Winger get interviewed and say, no, if I'm going to, my first GM job is my most important one. Cause if I suck, I'm never going to get another one. Does he come in and say, well, why would I want to hitch my wagon? Like I can wait a few years and go somewhere else where I can actually have freedom to hire a head coach because I like Ryan, but that's a huge part of your yep. team's success. I know what you're saying. Yeah. And I think that while it makes sense it's your first GM job, I think sometimes guys are just excited to get a GM It's true. Job. There's another side of that. And I haven't talked to Mike Winger. I don't, I don't know. But in reading some of uh, the David Griffin commentaries, he took the New Orleans, Pel- New Orleans Pelicans job. Yep. He has said numerous times, I was waiting for the situation that I wanted to have other teams have come knocking at my door about, you know, being an executive for them. And the situation wasn't right as to what they had. Now, I don't think that by that, what he means is the cap sheet mm-hmm. or the the roster because <laughs> David Griffin doesn't have, it's not a great situation yeah. in New Orleans <laughs> that he signed on for. I think that's exactly what he's talking about is how much power do I have to enact my full strategy from coach to the entire front office, everything. And I think that might be a difference Mm -hmm. with between winger versus Griffin. Yeah. Is that winger is more cool with Sondra. I don't want to say winger specifically, but I think there, there are people out there that are fine with Ryan being the guy and taking and also taking the GM job. That's my understanding. Maybe but, that's winger. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it was interesting to see. To see, I maybe shouldn't bring this up because I can't source it correctly. But I saw on Twitter a Rockets reporter and maybe Jonathan Fagan. Jonathan Fagan. That's mm-hmm. who it was saying that for Rosas, this is could be like a, a, a it could, this could be the right time, which is interesting. Kind of to your point of like you're waiting for the situation that makes sense and to to have Daniel Fagan, who's one of the most plugged in Rockets mm-hmm. reporters, say that could mean something. Yeah. There's something about this Wolves job that Daniel Fagan knows. Jonathan Fagan, but yeah, that's okay. No, that's no, fine. you're right. But that that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, yeah, and I don't know. I, you don't want to totally put yourself in Garrison Rosa's shoes, yeah. but you, know, you see out this year with the Rockets, and I mean, for them, they're kind of in a window, like right now, window, yeah. you know, totally. just because CP's getting older, yep. and you want to talk about onerous cap sheets, like they very much... Yep have that too in a situation where their owner hasn't showed a willingness to pay the luxury tax, yada, yada, yada. Like maybe it's time to like get out. Yeah. If a, a good opportunity 
presents itself. And I think to some GMs, they see Cat as an awesome, awesome piece yeah. that's under contract for the next five years. And they go, if you give me a five-year deal, meaning you tie me to Cat's existence here, mm-hmm. like I'm going to make something happen in yeah. five years because I think Cat's going to be a, a top five player yeah. in the league during that time. So I million different factors going into it, but I understand the detractors of wanting to take this job, historical incompetence. You have some bad, you have some bad contracts on the books, but you also have some like inklings of light mm-hmm. that the wolves are moving towards being more competent and you have cat. Yeah. And eventually Gorgie Jang's going to be off the books and eventually maybe you can do something with Andrew Wiggins. Yep. And even though fans justifiably don't like Glenn Taylor, he's respected around the league and he does have a past showing that he's willing to let an executive like this work. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that, he 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 will not, is not gonna like meddle in yeah. the, the the moves. I, I think that's overblown. What he I see him want to be doing is to be a face of the franchise owner, somebody who's hugs the players and is around them, chatting them up before and after the game. And, you know, he's Minnesota, he's from Minnesota. He's proud that he kept the Timberwolves here and he's proud of owning the team. Like, I think he wants to be around the team. I don't think he needs to be in the inner workings yeah. of, of what's actually happening. Let's hope not. I, let's hope not. I mean, maybe that's being too optimistic. I'm sure somebody's saying here, Dane, come on, like, like look at what's going on. He wanted on. to keep Wiggins yeah. with, the, with the Chicago trade. And... Maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. the person who's saying that is like, I don't know. Maybe you are right. I think there's more people who have more control now. And Glenn's getting older, and it's it's just not his thing to meddle with anymore. Yeah. So hopefully that's the case. What I'm thinking is that with any of these new gyms, do you see them? Do you see it as likely at all that they come in and start ripping it apart? Like right away from, I'm talking about like the roster. Yeah. When you talk about Teague, Jang, Wiggins moves. I don't see it likely or unlikely. I think that the people who would take the job, especially if they're one of those candidates, would easily identify the same problems that we do and have some level of motivation to solve them, to get rid of some of those negative pieces. But it's hard to imagine somebody, you know, comes into a new role as a general manager and to immediately start negotiating and 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 trying to make moves and trying to make big trades. You're just going to have huge trades. You're just going to have 29 other teams trying to take advantage take advantage of you. And so it's interesting to to think about how confident that person would be and how comfortable they'd be to make those big moves. But I do think that they would identify them and that they would want yeah. to do something about them. I just you would say that. Tibbs ultimately proved to be an aggressive yeah. decision maker, right? Mm-hmm. Made, went and got his guy in Jimmy Butler. Went and the people he signed were his type of guys, which I think implies aggression. I know maybe they didn't make a large volume of moves, but when you look back at the two and a half years of Thibodeau's time here, I think he was aggressive. Mm-hmm. That said, they didn't do anything the whole first year. Yeah, They yeah. brought in Brandon Rush, Cole Aldrich, and... Jordan Hill. Yeah, and I thought that was a good thing. It was. Evaluate. That was the 2016, yeah. 2016 summer. They did give Gorgie the extension. But they they took they took the time before really trading you know, Zach Levine. Yeah, yeah, before ripping it apart. And I don't know. I, I'm with you. I guess I could see both happening. 
I would just like to think whoever it is, is going to be a logical person. Yeah. And look at it and say, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to trade Gorgie Jang in a year. Yeah. I just Teague think- will be off the books in a year. Like, not that it doesn't make sense to trade Jang yeah. and Teague now, too. I mean, I've, I've written that a bunch. Like, mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if the new person implements some patience. Yeah. No, I wouldn't either. But I think there are some differences. One is that they were, 20, they were 19 and 20 back then. So trading a 19, 20-year-old is tough because yeah. it's like we don't, even, we don't even have any idea what these guys are. So now you have a good idea what Wiggins is. You know yeah, what Yeah, there were bad is. contracts they weren't, on the books. Yeah. So I think that changes it. I also think you're on more of a timeline now. Cat's not on a rookie scale deal anymore. I don't think you get another reason why this is such an important decision for Glenn Taylor is I don't think you really get another one of these while Cat's here. If you do, it's two years down the road. If you're firing this this general manager, it means mm-hmm. things have gone poorly. And if things have gone poorly, you're two years down the road from right now, you're kind of screwed. So this is such an important decision and they are on a timeline. So I think that does change things. You know, Cat's not 21 anymore. He does... It's four years. Okay, so, so people years. say that timeline thing mm-hmm. all the time, right? And they go, oh, we're a couple years away from Anthony Davis' situation. Three or four. four. Okay, so that's where I'm at. It's yeah. like three or four. Yeah. Anthony Davis was like four. Like he was up to the going into his last year, yeah. three and a half. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I see this or hear this when I talk to different people and they're like, well, you know, two more years of they don't make the playoffs for the next two years or it's up. Cat, yeah. Cat, I, I don't know. I, I still think you have more than two years with Cat. I totally agree. No matter what. Like, yeah. But if your timeline was two years, if the timeline was two years, and right now I'd be going, oh, yeah. man. Up we, your risk profile. Good good luck. Right. Yeah. But four years is a timeline. The, mm-hmm. the eight years that Thibodeau had when he signed on, yeah. that's not really a timeline. That's like a we can screw up and then still try and fix it. Yeah. Now they can't screw up. Now they got to They can't fix. screw up. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. They can't screw up. You can't, whatever move it is that you make, you can't, you know, you yeah. can't screw it up. So I think then if we're applying logic, that's a little bit more conservative, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also even, I, I don't, I wouldn't agree with anyone who said it's a two-year timeline, but I think that four-year timeline sneaks up on you way faster. Yeah, that's than, a good point. But just to, just to lay the framework a little bit of what this is, and I have a, I guess I posted this about a week ago, but it's up the site and I just have a, a table of what all the Timberwolves contracts are. If you want to look at it, it's, it's the Timberwolves financial landscape after the Jeff Teague decision. Um, between eight players, the Wolves are at $109.4 million yep. in guaranteed salary for next year. The salary cap is 109. So already over the salary cap without a full roster. Yeah. Just above half of a roster, actually. That jumps up to 114.8 if Cat makes all NBA, which is would be about six million over the cap. Mm-hmm. So the only reason I I bring that up is now we know this. The new Pobo knows this. Teague's here. These are the numbers. This is the reality of of the money here, which means I have very little room to do anything this summer if I'm not aggressive. Yep. If I do not trade Jeff Teague, if I do not trade Gorgie Jang, if I do not trade Andrew Wiggins. That that's a big factor. And I almost yeah. I almost wonder if Cat making all NBA is a is the swing line there. Yeah. Cause the swing line between like being conservative and being aggressive with your willingness to trade your bad contracts. Yeah. Because even, even if like, even if you trade Jeff Teague after cats made all NBA, you still don't have much space. No, like you don't have much space below the cap. 
I mean, yet you can more easily use your mid-level exception, which is like $9 million. Jeff like, Teague's like pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I know I, I've written it and suggested that that move make, makes sense, but I think it's in, it's in a product of moves yeah. that kind of come together just in a vacuum. It's not like must trade Jeff Teague. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. If you can find a way to move Teague for a player who's about $10 million less than him, Maybe you have to throw in a second round pick, maybe two second round picks. I think that makes a lot of sense. And the example I put out in the article was Teague plus a second, maybe two seconds for Dante Exum. I don't love Dante Exum by any means, but he makes $10 million less a year than Jeff Teague. Two more? Two more years? He has, yeah, he has two more years left on his deal. Where's Teague? So that's not great. But you then have a little bit more flexibility to be able to, to work with yeah. the mid-level exception. It's not a, it's not a perfect thing. I like it. And maybe the Bucks when Ricky Rubio's gonna be free agent, they need a point guard. Maybe they wouldn't even need two seconds. They go, Donovan Dante Axum wasn't very good for us this year. Mm-hmm. Like we've got him for two more years. We regret that contract. We need to sign a point guard. Jeff Teague, you know, for one year, he f- probably maybe fits our team a little better than Ricky Rubio if, the he's, jazz, if yeah. he's healthy. The Jazz, yeah. Like maybe they're just willing to do that trade and w- without getting that much compensation. And I don't even think that's that much compensation. Like a second round yeah. pick, and it's been great to have Kata like this year. Like Cool, you nailed that. But go through the second round. Pull up on your yeah. computer right now. The second round. It's there's a but lot you, of misses yeah. there. Like you want to have them though. You, you do want to have them. I, if it's the difference between you being able to use the full mid level exception, which is nine million dollars to go spend on Kelly Oubre, and then not having that, and just only being able to go get this year's Anthony Tolliver for mm-hmm. part of the mid level, like that's a big difference. Totally to me. And it you'll have to assess the market in that sort of way. But I think there's a there's a way. To do that, to create space in that Utah situation specifically, they have cap space. They can mm-hmm. absorb Teague. You don't have to have those salaries match up. There's other teams, and there will be as the pieces start moving, where there's a team who's like, we need a bridge point guard. Mm-hmm. Who we're, we're trying to win some this year. Also, Jeff Teague is basically a $19 million cap space gift card for us for the next summer. I don't think that's that off-putting because, as you said, when healthy, he's still a solid point guard. Mm-hmm. And I could see something like the Knicks, something like the Lakers. He was if the Wolves. He was the Wolves bridge point guard. Yes. Yeah. And I think he. I think he could be that again, just for one year, shorter yeah. bridge this time, as it should have been all along. But I, I think. I think it's worth if you're curious about all this stuff and you want to have like feel like you have a solid understanding of where the Wolves are at heading into the offseason. Dane's article is the, the perfect one to read because it's super thorough. And thank you. Well, no, like I'm. It's. It's such an important part of understanding where this team is at, is their financial situation. And it's interesting that Cat being awarded something that fans would like to have him be awarded. Good. Yeah. Good. Like that's such a goofy system. It's, it's worth understanding all of this because this is going to be such a fascinating offseason where there are a million free agents around the league and the Wolves won't have enough money to get any of them. It's w- without making a move. On a super simple level, if you don't make a move to cut one of those big contracts, at most, and it will be hard to do so, you can spend $9 million yeah. on a player this summer. And it'll be hard to do so. And it, that will be hard to do. Yeah. That, you're not getting much for $9 million. Yeah. You're getting, you're giving yourself a Tyus Jones and Corey Joseph situation. Yep. And that's not that great. Yeah. So it's, that's where this sits. That's where it's at for a new president of basketball operations. It will be fascinating to see which direction that person does go with it. Because I could see, I could see them saying, "Hey, we're 
We're not uh, waiting Al- around. Elton Brand. Yeah. yeah, right. Let's step in and go screw this. Go wild. Yeah. Um, we'll see. That will that will come uh with the Timberwolves this summer at some point. I don't know. We'll we'll talk about it when once they make an actual <laughs> decision there. Uh but until then we'll be we'll keep coming back with more of these. If you liked this type of kind of hyper focus on one series, I'm hoping our next one we can do is Golden State Houston. I love it. Kind of in a similar way. Yeah. We'll try and time it out. This one was a, a little bit early, but I just thought it was I feel very confident that it's yeah. going to be Bucks Celtics. So yeah. this has a little bit of staying power. And then Golden State, Houston, those, well, I guess it's 1-1 in the Warriors-Clippers series as we talk about. That. But I feel very confident that it's yeah. also going to be Warriors-Rockets. What so. if? That'd be awesome. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, ruin the podcast. I don't care. If it put the Clippers in the next show, that'd be awesome. Um, so we'll be back with that uh, sometimes next week. If you have a friend who wants to listen to an NBA related podcast. doesn't like the Timberwolves shoot him this. Uh, if you like the way that Charlie and I kind of try and cover the NBA, we appreciate that. Thanks for sticking with us. Charlie is at C John's NBA on Twitter. All our zone coverage stuff is at zone coverage MN. And I am at Dane Moore NBA. Uh, thanks for sticking with us until next time. Peace out. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.